Welcome to the Oxford Cybar podcast for the 18th of April 2013 from the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. Our speaker this month is Professor Michael Tremble, Emeritus Professor of Behavioural Neurology at the Institute of Neurology, Queen Square, London, who spoke on the topic of why humans like to cry. We hope you enjoy it. I'm going to talk about crying, and I'm going to read some excerpts from my book to get us going. But uh, I'm a researcher, and as part of research, I'm going to be using you as a research population about crying. Let me begin. And the quote, for those of you interested in philosophy, that I start the book with is in Incipit Tragodia, which is Nietzsche's quote, Tragedy Begins. In the summer of 2008, Ghana the gorilla gave birth to a male baby in Munster Zoo, which three months later died of unknown causes. Images of Ghana holding on to the dead infant for several days were widely reported in the newspapers and on the internet. Someone from the zoo said that such behavior was not uncommon in gorillas, and it was interpreted by some others as mourning. This may well have been correct, but what was more interesting was that another spokesman for the zoo implied that the whole of Germany was mourning for Ghana and the dead infant. And it was reported in the newspapers, and I quote, many visitors to the zoo who came to see Ghana and the dead child were moved to tears. However, Ghana the gorilla shed no tears. Now, one of the underlying themes of the book and the presentation is that of all living species, only humans cry tears emotionally. I'm not saying, make this clear, that animals don't have emotions that may well represent emotions very similar to ours. And there's many, many reports of animals showing apparent bereavement. However, and of course, any mammal or vertebrate that has an eye that needs kept free from infection or from dust or whatever, they will have to have tears. So I'm not talking about just tears which keep the eyeball moist or tears which have in them proteins, antibiotics, etc., to stop infection. What I'm talking about is the emotional response to tears. Now, it's perhaps relevant to start after that introduction. By the way, if anybody wants to ask a question, if you put your hands up, I mean, this is a sort of seminar rather than a didactic presentation. Um, But if anybody wants to ask any questions or say something, that's fine. Now, I think the next thing perhaps we ought to do is just to look a little bit about who cries, and then we'll look at why we may cry. But the first point is that it's humans who cry emotionally. Now, That says to me two things which form the basis of the book that I'm not going to talk too much about this evening. But one is, if only humans of all living species cry, then at some point in human evolution, crying must have emerged as an emotional signal. And that we might look at a little bit later on. The other point, those of you interested in the brain and neuroanatomy, which I don't want to get into now, But there must be neuroanatomical differences in the human brain compared with, let's say, the chimpanzee brain, if chimpanzees don't cry and we do. And those differences I draw out in the book. So emotional weeping is not only uniquely human, but it's also universal. There's a book written by Tom Lutz, L-U-T-Z, And it's just called crying. And he surveys the cultural aspects of tears and comments on tears as central in works of art over the ages. 
uh, he notes, the first recorded instance of tears is found in the uh, Canaanite clay tablets. That goes back to the 14th century BC, in which there's an account of weeping at the news of the death of the ancient Semitic god Baal by his sister and lover Anat. In Egyptian mythology, one finds weeping. Uh, Isis weeps for the dead Osiris. And in the early Mesopotamian epic Gilgamesh, which is considered to be one of the first works of literary fiction, the hero king Gilgamesh mourns for his companion Enkidu with tears that last for seven nights. So embedded within our cultural history, there is reference, very much reference to tears from the very outset. Now, I'm afraid to say, and if many hands go up, I'll justify this, when you compare the gender difference, wherever it's been looked at, women cry more than men. Uh, No hands? No? Right? Okay. This is of interest uh, to ask a number of questions. I mean, is that a biological factor? Or is that a sociological factor? I mean, how is this explained? Well, um, actually, somebody said to me in an audience, um, they put out their hand up and I said, and he said, um, well, surely it's because um, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Now, that might sort of imply a sociological attribution, namely that women simply have more to cry about than men. Um, and it may well be that men have developed social attributes that don't uh, allow them to cry as much as women. Uh, again, we might come back to that uh, a little later, but I, I think it's just reasonable to say now that after the Olympic Games, and unfortunately my book came out before the Olympic Games, but the Olympic Games were full of tears, tears of hoy, uh, which represent tears of joy. And, and even, you know, Murray burst out crying, you know, this stalwart Scotsman who was, you know, seemed to have no emotion. Um, and uh, tears were seen by winners, losers, parents, uh, the crowd, um, and uh, lots of it on the podium when the national anthem uh, comes out. So again, there's a link I'm going to come back to uh, to do with music. So women cry more than men. It's about a ratio of five to one in surveys. Um, You may like to know that when you survey frequency of crying and you measure things like empathy, there is a correlation between crying and empathy. And this, of course, immediately begins to ask questions about how empathic feelings that people have are triggered and stimulated by the performance of tears. Um, People tend to feel happier after crying. Now, this is highly situationally dependent. So if you're in a domestic dispute or domestic argument which doesn't resolve, then you're not going to feel much better with the crying. But in terms of crying, let's say, to art music particularly, and indeed in terms of crying with bereavement, then people do get relief emotionally from the crying. And I'm sure you're aware of a number of people in the literature, famously King Lear, uh, who essentially comments that with all the tragedy around him, if he does not cry, then his heart will break. And certainly in clinical practice, the person who is bereaved but cannot cry is very, very often somebody who has quite ambivalent uh, bereavement problems, and it may represent a difficulty. And I'll come back to how people get around that uh, in a moment. But this gender gap between males and females is a universal And if you're looking for the more biological aspects of this, then there's two things to comment on. First is that emotional disorders, depression, 
is commoner in women than in men. And again, that is universally found, or virtually almost universally found. But secondly, if you look at the gender gap, the difference between frequency and amount of female crying and male crying, it hasn't changed over a period of 30 years, from about the 1980s to, say, 2010, when people have looked at this. And during that time, of course, the social situation of women has changed enormously. And, one, and this is in Western cultures, particularly. So one would imagine that if it was purely a sociological factor, that gender gap uh, may uh, have changed. Now, the commoner causes uh, of crying um, have to do with loss, with bereavement, and with art. And I'm not going to discuss the bereavement aspects. I suspect that, again, you can all appreciate that. But with regards to crying in certain situations, um, I've come across one or two uh, pieces that I just thought I would mention and see what your responses to them were, really. And this arises a little bit out of <clears throat> sort of emails that I've had or other things like that. Um, just a few more facts. Men not only cry for shorter periods than women, but they're less inclined to explain their tears, usually shedding them more quietly and tend more frequently to apologize when they cry. Men, like women, report crying at the death of a loved one in response to a moving religious experience. They are more likely than women to cry when their core identities as providers and protectors, as fathers and fighters, are questioned. Uh, Shakespeare's Coriolanus, it's no little thing to make mine eyes to sweat compassion. All the Greek epics, I, I've mentioned some of the earlier ones, but the Greek epi epics are filled with tearful heroes. Uh, these include Odysseus, Agamemnon, Achilles. But in recent decades, um, even before Murray and the Olympics experience, public tears were shed by Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Sr. Um, and um, they uh, were also seen by uh, people such as the, um, uh, the famous uh, boxer, I can't remember his name now, who declared that he had cancer and uh, was unable to uh, carry on with, with boxing. Uh, actually, Obama choked up after his uh, re-election uh, victory. It was, it was Babe Ruth who cried on television. So crying by men has become more acceptable because of television. So, you know, when, when Clinton gives uh, a speech and, and cries, or when Obama gives a speech and cries, the speech will go on for half an hour, but the clip that will go on television is when he starts to cry. So it's... I'm going to ask a question to Aaron in a moment. I'm going to ask you chaps about crying. So it's okay to cry, and uh, you, don't have to, uh, you don't have to hide it. However, I mentioned the bit about suppressing tears. And there are such things as false tears. And um, that's right, there was, a, a, there was a, a time, particularly in France, in the 17th century and early 18th century, when crying became very fashionable, particularly with men, but the surveys weren't done then. But the playwrights, the tragic playwrights like um, Cornet and Racine, had so much crying in their plays. And... Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the philosopher and uh, critic and whatever, he just loved to cry for the sake of crying. And there was a big debate in the French literary critical circles at this time as to whether a good play was one that made you cry. And so a number of the authors of plays actually judged the success of the play by how many people in the audience cried whereas the other side of the argument was the emotional arousal produced by the play 
took away from its intellectual content and its intellectual sincerity and indeed um, was, in inverted commas, sentimental. And that's a very interesting argument, um, that tears uh, and indeed emotions, when aroused too greatly in an artistic setting, are, are anti-intellectual. And this, of course, was something which Plato and, um, and, and Sophocles brought into their uh, arguments against emotion in the arts. I mean, you know, famously, Plato in his Republic would ban poets because poets uh, aroused emotions, but the emotions were not those which led to the logos, logic. Um, they were those which actually, if anything, destroyed logic. And he didn't like the plays. So um, the idea of going to the theatre, seeing a tragedy and seeing people crying and seeing the death of the hero, that really meant that there was more to life than logic, that there was death and tragedy and emotion. And so again, Plato would have all that abolished. The problem of people not crying at funerals is and also was a problem in those times, particularly for if the leader of the, the you know, political leader, the emperor, whatever, died, and you went to the funeral. I mean, we'd just been seen a funeral a couple of days ago. Um, if you didn't cry, it meant you didn't have worship for the leader, in this case, probably Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, and if you didn't cry at a funeral, it rather, and it was your husband's funeral, it rather meant that you weren't quite as much in love with him as you were supposed to be. So, again, it's a little Shakespearean quote, but it's quite well known that the way women used to get round this was to chop up an onion and put it in a handkerchief and put it to their eyes, which would bring on tears. So those are false tears. And there's another interesting thing about false tears, and that's how actors and actresses do it. So I, I, I don't know, is anybody here, an, when I say actor, actress, act, I'm going to say actor for everything. Is anybody here an actor who is acting actively on the stage at the moment, or rehearsing? No. Okay. So I, I, I may be wrong, but I believe it is the, uh, the quintessential achievement in acting to cry when you need to for the moment in the play. And certainly it would seem that the tragic actors in the past had this ability, the great actors in the past. There was a performance of um, Racine's Berenice, or Berenice, uh, recently in London, uh, the Donmarsh. And that is a play where everybody's in tears. And at the last soliloquy, the um, Berenice turns round and she says, and everybody around me is in tears. And I can tell you that nobody was in tears. They were a dry-eyed audience, and it was a dry-eyed play, and yet in 17th century France that would, in theory anyway, have led to a lot of tears and actors who were producing the tears. And I, again, there's no actors actors here, it strikes me that um, the ability to produce these kind of emotions is something which is quite rare, and it occurs with a number of actors who are just at that level above the common or garden acting that we see, uh, particularly in the West End. So let me, from there, just move on a little bit to what is perhaps... Oh, no, I just want to do one more uh, situational thing, or two more. This was in the uh, papers at the weekend. It was crying at work. Now, I don't know any of these people. This was in the, was in the Sunday Times. I thought it was of interest. Sarah Blakely founder of a thing called Spanx. Anybody know that? Yeah, okay, you do? It, it, should it be S-P-A-N-X or S-P-A-N-K-S? Oh, oh, right, okay. She says, if someone cries in the office, I like to reach out and grab, her ha grab their hand and say, I'm here. Everybody rallies round. You feel closer to your colleagues and it fosters teamwork. 
Jackie Flint. Anybody know Jackie Flint? Journalist? That's probably good. She says, I've no time for people who cry at work. Uh, Ross Toynbee, uh, the care coach co, says, it's not appropriate to be blubbering and being, to be a blubbering wreck at work. Now, I thought that was quite interesting, um, but several people after I'd, I'd given a talk somewhere on, the, on a radio wrote in and said, what about crying at work? There's no studies as far as I know. But let me do the first of my experiments here with this wonderful audience. You have to put your hands up, and you men, you've got to be truthful and honest. Who thinks it is acceptable to cry at work? Oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, six and a bit, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Well, not many. Okay, so the general... Uh, well, that's good. I'm going to put that in my next paper that I've surveyed 100 people. And but that's very interesting. So most of you think it's unacceptable to cry at work. But I want to find somebody who was against the proposition. I have hands up. Who thinks it's inappropriate to guess? Have the microphone and explain why you don't, why you don't, why you don't uh, think it's appropriate to cry in the office. It's appropriateness. It's, a, it's appropriateness. I mean, you go to work to do your job, you get hard, and theoretically you should be able to do that without having an emotional reaction when you're asked to do something. Right. I say that as somebody who's cried at work on several occasions. Yes. <laughs> but no, I don't think it looks yes. professional. Yes. How about a, a male opinion? No? How about a man's opinion? Let's go down there. Is there who, who, didn't, who thinks it's inappropriate to... Male thinks it's inappropriate for people to cry at work. I bet nobody's going to put their hands up now. Yeah, there you are. There's, there's one down there. Yes. Oh, can we have the... Yeah. Is it on? It's, it's going to be a bit of a cop-out answer because I'm going to agree with what the previous person said and said it's, it's just inappropriate to do that, I think, especially if, if you're in one of those situations where you're talking to clients or anyone else. It's, it's just... It's, it's, it comes down to appropriateness, and I don't think it is. This is a little bit like the Plato's, Plato's argument that in his republic, as in your office, um, you know, emotion is a bad thing because it interferes with logical thinking. You know, the Greeks, and every, well, since the Greek times, people who hung up on logic, the logos, the kind of a Cartesian mind which is separate from the body, and uh, through thinking uh, and asking questions and producing logical constructions, you can A, reach the truth, but B, you don't have to have your clear thinking interfere with, with emotions. Okay, well, that was interesting. Here's another one, which, again, I, I just came across last night. I don't know those of you who like plays. This is a wonderful play by Terence Rattigan. Um, the, uh, it's the Winslow Boy, which is, which is really quite, quite well known. Um, but the boy is uh, convicted of stealing a postal order for five shillings. And um, he's sent down from his uh, school, and the father doesn't accept this. And at great personal expense, uh, both financially and physically, the father is determined that his son is going to get to court and be exonerated. The play is wonderfully done. But there's a very, very prototypical barrister called uh, Sir Robert Morton. And he wins the case. Sorry to spoil it if any of you are going to go, but he wins the case. And uh, the sister of the young boy um, says to him as follows. Uh, she, she's trying to get him to react emotionally, which he's absolutely refused to do. Why are you all, she says, why are you always at such pains to prevent people knowing the truth about you, Sir Robert? Am I indeed? You know you are. Why? Perhaps because I do not know the truth about myself. That's no answer, she says. My dear Miss Winslow, are you now cross-examining me? On this point, yes. Why are you so ashamed of your emotion? Because, as a lawyer, I must necessarily distrust them. Catherine, why? Why? 
To fight a case on emotional grounds, Miss Winslow, is the surest way of losing it. Emotions muddy the issue. Cold, clear logic and buckets of it should be the lawyer's only equipment. Catherine, was it cold, clear logic that made you weep at the verdict? Pause. Sir Robert, your maid, of course, told you that. It doesn't matter. It'll be in the papers anyway. Very well, then. If you must have it, here it is. I wept today because right had been done. Now, one doesn't normally think of people weeping when a right has been wronged. And yet, when you think about it, a lot of the things that you see, again, on television, people coming out of the, out of the courts or the old Bailey or the high courts, and they've, you know, something has happened, they've won a case, and they're tearful about it. And I'm sure you may think of personal battles that you may have had to fight, which have led to a lot of pent-up emotion over a long period of time. Legal cases, of course, are very much like this. Uh, so that's another reason why people actually produce tears, because it's a right has been wronged. And in our social structure, again, this goes back to the Greek times particularly, what is fundamental to human culture and society, almost, I think, everywhere you go, is right, that people are treated correctly. And where there's an imbalance, you have revenge, and then we all know what happens in revenge, again, those of you who know your theatre. So that was, I thought, quite interesting, that this lawyer actually broke down in tears because he had won the case and right had been done and inequality had been, uh, been levelled out. Now, I think the next thing I'm going to do, um, and I don't want to miss this, is to go on and do another experiment and talk about the arts. So let, let me be clear again that I've talked about crying as a human attribute. I've talked about certain areas that provokes crying. But I want to draw attention in particular to crying to the arts. Because I, I think you can argue that the Ursprung, the beginnings of art, are clearly to be found in many animal species that have been looked at. So if you say oh, only humans respond to whatever we might call art, people will tell you about the bowerbirds, uh, the male uh, bowerbird who collects uh, lots of items from the environment, often colored ones, and decorates his bower. Uh, and the female bowerbird will go round and look at the different bowers and select one to be her mate. But, the, but the, 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 the bowers are beautifully constructed to even the human eye. And they clearly are created as opposed to these things just being uh, done randomly. So people, that's just one example. Um, but there's something very interesting about the arts and human response. So let me just try. Was it you? Can you... Someone said there were 50%, and I'd said, okay, right, right. Who in this room, men included, cry to music? Now, who have you ever cried or cry to music? Put up your hands. Right, can't see down there. Music, okay. Now, I want just to remind you that music, I want to remind you that, that music is including the movies with music. Yeah, yeah, including the music. So I can't see, I, I can see a lot of people. I'm going to ask you at the very end. I think there's one of you down there, he's run away now, he's, who, who doesn't cry to anything. I'm going to come back to that. Anyway, okay, but let me just say that it's a good proportion of you. In my surveys, 80, 90% of people cry to music. I, said, I, I mentioned movies then because in my service I haven't included the cinema. And people come to me after and say, why didn't you include the cinema? Well, the answer is that it's the music plus the drama 
that leads to people crying in the cinema. But can you imagine Titanic without the music? Or can you imagine the artist, so-called silent film, without the music? And even if you go back to the real silent films, the 19, I don't know, 20, 1910, 1920, you know, there was always the Wurlitzer organ or the piano in the background. So the music is what drives it. Now, let me try this one. Who in the room has cried to, listening to, or reciting, or reading poetry? Okay, there's not one, two people down there. Three, four, five. We're, okay, we're down. How, what would you say now? About five, ten percent? Oh, sorry, how, what percent about that? About ten percent, maybe? Twenty, okay. So we're going down from about... I don't know, 80% to 20%. Now, who in this room has cried looking at a beautiful painting? I'm going to ask you which one it is. So we've got two, three, okay, four. I, I'm going to ask you out of personal interest. But that's, we're down to really quite small numbers now. And I almost know the answer to this one. Who's cried looking at a beautiful sculpture? Or a beautiful building? I did... I, I, I didn't catch that. You got two hands up. No, 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 like, yes, you're the. Uh, uh, this is a building. Yeah. Can you just, out, just out of interest, say say what it was and what the occasion was? Um, I had just graduated architecture and I saw the Guggenheim for the first time. You saw the Guggenheim in New York. The Guggenheim. Yeah. The only female building in New York. Well, yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright was a little bit mad, so it was really nice to see it. It was nice to see it, but you you actually cried. Tears. I cried. Yeah. Okay. No. A that, little bit, not you know. No, no, that's. Say, but, that, you, know, but. you get in free if you uh, cry. No, that that's fine. But it's you see, this is very interesting. So music, all all the time, is the. Oh, by the way, what was the painting again? Just if you can remember. Okay. Suzanne painting the, the, at the Courtauld Gallery. Right. The, oh, that, that, that's the lake. Um, the, the, uh, it's the landscape. Yeah, it's the uh, famous lake. Does anybody know that? I, I, I know exactly the one you mean. Yeah, I know exactly the one you mean. Uh, it's, it is the most beautiful uh, uh, Cezanne painting. Ben, it's, uh, it's, it's right in front of you as you're walking. So anyway, it, but very interesting. So, so music takes it all the time. Now, one needs to ask questions about this because when you read things about the arts, you know, you pick up something on the arts... It always refers to painting, occasionally to sculpture. Very rarely does it say anything about um, uh, architecture. There's always a little architectural section. But music does have a separate section, I have to admit that. But the differences between these arts is never really uh, exemplified. And, I, and I, one of the things about the book is to draw attention to music, which brings me to a little bit of anthropology. Somewhere, and anthropologists, and I apologize to those one or more of you who are anthropologists in the room, anthropologists are often not very clear on dates. So what I'm talking about now are experiences which went on somewhere between 200,000 and 1 million years ago, give or take a few years. And in order to understand the evolution of him. Crying, and also the evolution indeed of language. I think you have to go back, and anthropologists, as far as I know, very rarely do this. Go back to a time when our ancestors could not use the propositional language that we have today. Now, what is it about about music? It's gone off the music. What happens as soon as you put on a piece of music? You move. So it's movement, it's movement. And movement is really a sign of life. If it doesn't move, it probably isn't living. Even if it's asleep, you'll see it moving. So movement is part of life. But movement, if you think about the word emotion, then it is six-sevenths motion. Okay. And if you speak uh, different languages, German Bewegung is movement and move, to emotionally moved. Uh, and in lots of languages, the word emotion is bound up with movement. So movement, emotion, and music. So it's a very great interest that humans are the only species 
that can entrain to rhythm. So you can train an elephant to beat a drum for a short while. You can have a dog who will entrain to rhythm for a short while. But uh, I'm sure a number of you are able to dance all night long. And that's because you can entrain to music. And the rhythm, of course, of music is so important. And let's now go back two and a half thousand years. Let's just go back those uh, a uh, uh, quarter of a million years to uh, a million years. And I want you to think of our ancestors round a campfire. Now, these were hunter-gatherers. We're non-hunter-gatherers, but the hunter-gatherer communities uh, were peripatetic. Um, they would find an area, they would settle in it, they would make some kind of camp, they would hunt, and they would bring their meat back to the area where they would have to eat it. Now, Prometheus, the god who upset Zeus, who's a classical scholar here? Huh? Yes? Why, did Prometheus, why was Zeus upset? He gave, um, he gave fire to mankind when the, god, the Olympian gods were specifically told not to. Yes, he stole. He stole fire from Zeus, gave it to mankind. And what happened was that fire led to increased communal activity. People at night, maybe after the end of the day of hunting, around a campfire. And also, of course, they could cook meat. And the cooking led to a huge increase in the amount of calories available for any particular weight of protein. So not only did he give fire, he also gave intelligence to mankind, something, again, which Zeus uh, rather resented. And, of course, Prometheus came to a rather bad end, having his liver chewed out and being tied to a rock um, and uh, forever. Uh, well, the other thing, of course, he did, that he, um, he stole Pandora's box. And uh, you know what happened to Pandora? She was female, um, and she, like Eve, gets blamed for everything. But uh, Pandora's box... Um, uh, Prometheus was told never to open Pandora's box, which he did. And all of the sins of mankind flew out, and we've had them ever since, except there was one thing which was left in the box. Does anybody know what that was? Hope. Hope. Yes, hope. So anyway, this was Prometheus. Now just go back to the campfire. Now these are people who don't sit around like we're doing, talking, using propositional language. Oh, I know that today we went out and we caught uh, zebra, and uh, you've, 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 there's no propositional language, or it's just beginning. But I discussed this in the book. One of the differences between the human brain and the chimp brain allows us to do something else that only humans do, and that is indicate, indicate. Now, I'm going to, I don't wish to be rude, uh, but you're, and you're going to come back with your question, but if you just... Out. I don't even have to say it. Yep. Or here's another one. So, somewhere, humans were indicating, because no other uh, primate does this. And the anatomical connections that allow this are present in the human brain, but they're not present in the chimpanzee brain or, or, or whatever. So, but indication obviously became important. Emotion, remember, comes uh, with motion. And the origins of language, many people believe, were related to early gestures. But they're around the campfire. Now, the other thing that's happened in human evolution is that the, the throat, the anatomy of the throat and the thorax has altered, which allows, when you think about this, it allows people to, with one breath, do much more than a number of other animals. So if you, look, if you watch your dog or you watch a horse racing, four-legged animals, when they run, the chest has to contract, particularly with the heavier animals, the chest has to contract so that the full force of the animal on its legs can bound forward. So they have one breath 
to one step. That the humans out hunting were able to have many breaths for a single step. Now, many breaths for a short period of time means that you can use the first musical instrument. The first musical instrument was the voice. Yeah. So you're around the campfire. This is the scene I envisage. People around a campfire, they, they make sounds. They're emotionally very, very bound together. They've had a hunt. They, you know, again, we think, oh, other animals, they're, they're, they're stupid. They haven't got any intelligence. But you know, you know that, that lion packs, they hunt uh, in groups. We know that hyenas hunt in groups. We know, we know that uh, animals have very, very uh, uh, complicated bonding arrangements. And our early ancestors must have had those in order to survive. And so they're around the campfire. It's at night. There's the, the sounds of the ambient air and the forest. Well, it wouldn't be the forest, but the uh, environment. And what might they do? Might they start singing? Not words, but singing. And might they start dancing? And was this the origin of much more complex social bonding. So that's the first thing I'd want to put forward, that there must have been a time when humans started singing and dancing, and I think it must have been in those hunter-gatherer communities. But there's something else. They're singing and they're dancing. And what then happens? Well, the power of language as we know it began to develop. And there are two arguments here. One is that there was a big bang. Uh, people like Big Bangs, the beginning of the universe and all this kind of thing, um, that, that suddenly a group of uh, our hominid ancestors w woke up one day being able to talk Shakespearean English. Well, that's nonsense. It can't be. It has to have evolved very slowly. But what happened when people started to string together sentences and talk? Well, one of the things that had happened by that time, this is something else you may not know, but all mammals dream. All mammals dream. Well, we think dogs dream. You can see them. But if you do EEG recordings, the time of the uh, night when we dream, so-called REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, is the time uh, when you have made main dreams. And all mammals have REM sleep and dreams. So again, around the campfire, there's this social bonding. There's small groups of people. The, the communities were never bigger than 100, 150 people. And one of them wouldn't be there. They died. And yet, the next night, somebody in the group dreams of the person who's dead and disappeared. So, again, surely from a psychological standpoint, I suggest that it was at this point in time that very early religious experiences began to emerge. Because if there was another world that you could get to, how, how do you do that? And really, a lot of religious experience throughout the world is to do with getting to another world. So that must have started around that time. We've got early singing, uh, dancing, and the development of ritual. And uh, that, of course, then leads on to the development of, of religiosity generally. But within that time, I'm suggesting that crying emerged as a social signal of bereavement and distress, but also perhaps even round the campfire, early tears of joy. And just remember what happens round a campfire. It's like going round to a barbecue. Smoke gets in your eyes. And that provokes tears as well. So there may well have been some evolutionary development or in the uh, hunter-gatherers that were related to these early origins of tears in males. So I'm going to stop very uh, shortly. I thought maybe I would just read uh, the last uh, little bit of the, of the book, only, only a, perhaps a page, but it has to do really with the feelings we get when we listen to music, when we go to the theatre and enjoy the experience, um, and always been this question as to why on earth would you go to the theater to cry? I mean, people come out of the movies, they cry, and they say, oh, it was wonderful. 
What, what is it about that? Where do those feelings come from? And I put all this in an evolutionary uh, perspective. And remember tragedy, the art form tragedy, which the commentators post hoc suggest was developed by the Greeks with the tragic dramatists, Aeschylus and Euripides, Sophocles, etc. And that's of course true, but my view on that is that the Greeks hijacked the art of tragedy. We don't, as far as we know, the Egyptians didn't have the equivalent. Uh, there's no evidence of Babylonian uh, theater and tragedies in that sense. But there certainly was religious, not Christian or even uh, anything to do with Greek religion, but there's certainly these early religious experiences which interlinked with incantations, prayers, dancing, uh, but also uh, tragedy and loss. So, tears are an accompaniment to tragedy as art form, and in particular, music. And in the art forms, they reflect the tears of everyday human tragedy. And this is very much linked to loss and mournings, mourning. These feelings have arisen in the course of our long evolutionary history, Notably, with the rise of self-consciousness, the I am, and the sense that I am not, there is, of course, the famous to be or not to be, which is perhaps the first philosophical question of early mankind. With the development of small communities and the growing potential for love between individuals, and hence the even greater sense of loss when one of the loved die. Binding these feelings together is music, the traditional art form that most moves us to tears and without which many social occasions would be bereft of meaning and pleasure. Since our response to crying in many settings turns out to be rewarding, which is again linked to the underlying neurobiology of the emotions, the arts that evoke such emotions have flourished and they represent an ancient echo from our ancestral past. So I'm going to stop there, but I'm happy to carry on any kind of discussion. Thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to ask you a question about the, the relative uh, gender frequency of crime. So you said that um, over 30 years, um, you said something to suggest that the difference between how many men, how eagerly yeah. and how often yeah. men and women cry hadn't changed over those 30 years. Yeah. And then you said something about um, since that there's men have been shown on TV crying, it's become more acceptable for men to cry. So I wondered yeah. what it was you meant but more acceptable for them to cry if it wasn't measured in terms of how often they cry. Yes. No, these are just examples of men crying uh, that, that, that come on the television. But the gender, mm -hmm. the gender um, uh, surveys are done on several hundreds of people. So, I mean, you know... So does that mean you don't really think it's, that it's got more acceptable for men to cry? No, I think it is more acceptable for men to, to be seen crying. I mean, men cry like women do, um, uh, but the media has allowed it to be more acceptable. I think that's what I'm saying. But if you do a survey of a thousand people and repeat it, you know, five or six years later and then ten years later, right. the individuals will get buried uh, within I that. I see. So, so. The, so the claim is change in acceptability without changing numbers. Yes, I think that's okay. probably right. You it's might think change yeah. in acceptability without yeah. changing numbers. Yeah. You were saying that usually <laughs> we are not really um, lead to cry if we see something like a portrait or a sculpture or a building. What about other visual aids, like a photograph? Is anything connected with empathy? Because if you see, I don't know, a woman crying or the corpse of a baby, you are feeling yourself prone to cry. So I was just asking you, is how much um, is about um, a reaction? You know, sometimes you feel yourself like prone to crying if you see someone else suffering. So no, I was just that, asking. 
that, that's a very important question. And the art form that we're talking about is tragedy. But in terms of seeing somebody else crying, then that, that is very important. I'm just going to come back to that. But at the moment, I want to just stick to the arts. Um, and I don't think... I'm going to get shoved out of here if I say this. I don't think photography is an art form myself. Uh, if it is, it's a dead art form and not a living art form. It's... Uh, oh, sorry, sir. Uh, no, no, no. Chase no, beautiful photos. Oh, no, no. Beautiful, beautiful. I have no question about the beauty of them. Uh, but and I didn't include them in my survey. We could have a discussion about whether the photography's art. No, well, that, uh, yeah. But but let me well let me let me. to an artist. Actually, this gentleman's kindly offered to take a nice picture of me, so I ought to. Uh, so, so, um, I think my point would be about about it uh, that, that, that a photograph is static, and this this is where the difference between music is. Okay. So when you just think about it... artists wanted to um, replicate photorealistic art, and it's come back in quite a few different guises over the last... Well, certainly over the last 50 years, and the shock of the new and, and all this. So, so, you know, you say photography static, it leads to other things. No, no, I, I meant if you look at a photograph, it, it is static. If you look at a sculpture... I mean, there are some wonderful sculptures, particularly beginning in the Renaissance. Uh, you know, M Michelangelo in particular was one of the people who put movement into the, into, the, into the sculptures. And I have to say, it's very difficult sometimes when you're seeing one of those very, very beautiful marble women in front of you representing some Greek goddess. It's very difficult not to want to touch her. And, of course, they always shout at you if you go too close. Uh, but actually, touching beauty is quite interesting. But it doesn't bring tears. It, has, it doesn't to me, and it, it doesn't to really anybody here, or just like one of you or whatever. So it's static. Looking at a painting, it's static. It's on the wall. It may be beautiful. There's no doubt about it. And I also think there is a cultural link here, that when you went into the cathedral, or the church, but the cathedral in the 14th century, early 15th century, when you had the music and you had the fabulous cathedral, which was God's house, and you went in through the portals where Christ was there entering you in, and there was singing, and there was the incantation to God. And by the way, that was another place that was acceptable to cry. And if you didn't cry tears in those settings, again, you know, what was wrong with you? You were supposed to have tears for Christ. So, and, but the paintings, the religious iconography at that time, I suspect, but I have no evidence for this, induced many more tears because of the setting than we now have where all of these paintings that we tend to see, only if you go to Italy particularly, but if you, they're in a gallery and they're stuck up on the wall, there's lots of other people there, and it doesn't produce the crime. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association Oxfordshire Branch.